Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ezra Klein Show. I'm really excited today. I got a chance to sit down with Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. He's the author of a new book, United. His book is really for a, a politician's book. In fact, for just a normal book, but political books, I think, tend to get graded on a curve. It, it's really very good. It, it's an unusually vulnerable, thoughtful, powerful account of not just his path to politics, but a lot of moments where that path went pretty badly awry and when he dealt with things that I don't think you typically read politicians writing about. We talk in this episode about both his approach to politics but and his elections, but his sense of spirituality, his veganism. Uh, we talk about apps, which is sort of where we begin, as you'll hear in a moment. He tells some Gandhi stories. It was a really humanizing conversation for for me to have with him and, and i hope it'll be so for you to listen to as well so without further wind up here is senator cory booker you doing i'm doing well i've definitely uh i'm straining the limits of my endurance running around for this presidential election plus the book and uh and then the normal of jumping back and forth between dc and new jersey so I never really truly had that experience where you wake up and you're, you have to think for a few minutes, okay, where am I? <laughs> I? I somewhat don't believe that there has been any time last decade where if somebody <laughs> said, how are you doing? You couldn't have said, I'm straining the limits of my endurance. <laughs> you know, I, I now, just read about you doing an eight-day fast. <laughs> yeah, you know, I now have this Fitbit thing, which actually tells me how much I've slept for. And I thought I got more sleep than I actually was getting. This has sort of been the revelation in my life that... This is why I drag sometimes. What are the numbers? Like last week, I averaged five hours. and <laughs> For a whole week? No, no, no. Five hours a day. <laughs> no, I mean, you averaged it out over yeah, five. Yeah, yeah. That's what I would, Fitbit does I would for legitimately you. die. Yeah, I, I honestly, my chief of staff was making fun of me day before yesterday because I just was not a functioning human being. I was really just slogging through the day desperately. The problem with me is when I get tired and worn down, I just fill my body with empty carbs. It's like I just can't stop eating because I don't know. I think my body's just trying to get energy from someplace. Uh, so I follow your your food travails on your Instagram. And yeah, it's a you sad don't story. seem I, like a guy who eats a lot of empty carbs. I, I, I sometimes will look and, and I eat pretty healthy. My I know you're vegan. My wife is vegan. I'm vegetarian. And I will think, ah, oh, like he has got to put some spicing on that food. <laughs> It'll just be like a mountain of cabbage or yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> so the problem with me is I, I just need to get into a routine because the problem – I go through times where I'm the best eater on the planet Earth and then times where I'm a poster child for everything that you should not consume that a vegan can consume. For example, today I go to a press conference on uh, an issue I'm very – I'm passionate about and still stunned at the lack of action in America, which is these Superfund sites that are actually getting we, – we're getting more of them. And so – 
the 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 Region Two uh, EPA head, who's become a friend because I've worked with her since I was a mayor. You know, she must live right across from a vegan bakery because she hands me two cupcakes, and I will. <laughs> I'm so dead, I know that I'm going to be getting back in the car this evening and will inhale those cupcakes. The process will not be mastication and, uh, and then swallowing, and, and I, will, I will breathe them in. The idea that you've not eaten them already, I think, speaks tremendously to your willpower. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll give you one since, you're, since you were talking about a Fitbit. I have this app called Way of Life now huh. that just tracks your habits. Like, did you do something or did you not do it that oh. day? I have found it unbelievably, unbelievably effective. The amount in which I do not want to mark red on this app that oh, nobody wow. else will ever see and has no actual punitive measures in my life. It is stunning. So can it you give me stunning. an example? Like, like... Yeah, so I track whether I read 10 pages in a book that day, whether I meditated that day. Oh, wow. I have, I have all kinds of weird eating things I track too, whether I worked out that day. And there's been a number of times when I've wanted to eat something or wanted to not do something, but the idea of hitting red on my app was just too dispiriting. I'm going to download that app. You just said my stuff. I, like, I, I want to try to meditate every day, which I don't do regularly. Work out every day, which I don't achieve every day. And then what was the other one you said? Read 10 pages. Read 10 I've, pages, right? I, I've, I've kind of all kinds of weirdo eating things. I'm doing this thing called intermittent fasting. I, I really can't defend the way I live my life. But, but hold on. There's a lot of data coming out now. Some book I read recently blew me away on this idea that there was a conventional wisdom that said that if you don't eat regular meals, your metabolism will take a hit. And now I just recently was reading things that said that's not true. That, that long fasts actually are really good for yourself and you don't hurt your metabolism if you fast a day. Yeah, it turns out to not be true. I'm not going to argue because I, I'm, not, I'm not sure of the truth here that what I do has any strong evidence behind it. There's a great health reporter at Vox named Julia Blues, and her big point about how to eat is that the best diet is the one that for whatever reason works for you. And it doesn't matter if it's high protein or low protein or high carb or low carb or high fat or low fat. And, you know, I was always doing these sort of eating plans. It would be, you know, have all this protein in the morning. But it turns out I just don't like eating breakfast. Right. And so I just don't eat from, you know, whatever it is, 9 p.m. at night to 1130 in the morning. And just not having to choose or think about that works incredibly well for me. Okay. So sell me on intermittent fasting. Why does it work for you? Because I'm, I'm, I'm willing to try that. So – with the, the disclaimer here, I don't want to sell anybody on anything because okay. I'm not sure it's a good idea. I, I've read about it. It seemed interesting to me, and it just – it works for me because what it basically does for me is it cuts out – I don't snack after dinner. I mean, it just – it takes away the option to snack after dinner. I, I can't tell myself, oh, you know, it's nuts. Don't people say nuts are healthy? I just don't do it because I'd have to put red in my app. And then in the morning, I don't eat breakfast or snack until 1130. And it just – And why 1130, not noon? Because I find I become a horrible monster of a human being, like right around 1130. It is a dangerous thing sometimes to be – I always have 11 a.m. meetings, and I'll find like midway through the meeting, I'm just getting cranky and upset at what people are telling me, and I'll like have to like walk out and like eat something. So, so it, you can push it and, and get a little okay, – I get so, pretty angry. So give me the, So you do have a rhythm to your day, though. So you eat at 1130, yeah. and you eat a, a dinner at what time? Seven usually. Okay, is like that, that the only two meals of the day? The eleven thirty yeah. meal and the seven meal. Yeah, and I'll, I'll like have like a bar or something in the afternoon. But you can be pretty normal in between. Then it, for me, it really is just like skipping breakfast, and I don't snack that much. And again, like I am not. This is not the way that would work for other people. I'm not like a proselytizer of it. Of it, it just completely works for me. I will. I will. You have not sold anything to me. I'm a man. I'm a man of. I'm a man of <laughs> I do not play well. <laughs> I do not play a doctor on podcasts. You do not. Uh, but I, I may be trying 
Because the problem is I often wake up and I just have no hunger. And I used to believe that I need to force myself to eat breakfast because that kickstarts my metabolism was the, the, the belief I used to have. And now I'm just not sure if I don't feel a need for food until I'm kind of like you, until like 11, why am I stressing over it? Why yeah, not? this has been a big thing for me over the last year of like leaning into what my body's natural patterns appear to be, which, you know, for a long time I was like fighting to wake up earlier than I can really wake up to eat in different ways than I really can eat and sort of to instead like pick up practices that appear to go with the grain of my sort of natural intuitions. It might be pushing those natural intuitions a little bit further than I normally would. But I find that a lot easier than stuff like eat six small meals a day doesn't work for me at all. When I start eating, I will eat a lot of food. And like, that's just got to be okay. Okay. What is the name of the app? Because I'm writing it down. This... Uh, Way of Life. And is it spelled W-A-Y? Just the way you think. Okay. Uh, yeah, W-A-Y. All right. I'm going to try this. You've, you've given me hints and I will report back to you <laughs> <laughs> what, what I think of your lifestyle. I will either, so, con- condemn, it on, I'll either condemn it publicly on Twitter or I will uh, say very quietly to you I, that I, I appreciate it. I would appreciate you condemning it publicly <laughs> on Twitter. You, you have a lot of followers as long as you at me when you do it. <laughs> so one thing that's been good is that this week I've been able to put green on my red 10 pages of a book oh. because I read this great new book, United, by did you actually, did Senator you actually, Cory Booker. Actually read I, have, I have read your book. So let me just tell you something. I have a lot of questions. Well, first of all, before <laughs> you get this, like, I've done lots of interviews. And you could tell when somebody's read the book versus not – Unless they've had a really good producer that's prepped them, usually the people who have not read it, it's just not as rich of an interview. So I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you got a lot of green on your app. I think I'm going to be able to prove that I read your book to you. So there, I, I think I want to start with some of the stories that I actually wanted to ask you more about. But I actually then want to move and talk just like a little bit about the way you wrote the book and the way you write and, and the way you think. Because the book was sort of very interesting to me on a meta level as opposed to just on, on the specific level. But I kind of wanted to start this story you tell about how your parents got their house in Bergen County. I wanted you to retell that story because what you took from that and the way it, I think, plays into some of the, the very modern debates in American political life is really interesting. No, I appreciate that. So just know I grew up with parents that really wanted me to understand that the affluence I enjoyed, this sort of middle class, uh, really nice neighborhood, and the success I was having as a teenager wasn't all because of my somehow brilliance or great athletic ability, but was because of incredible contributions made by thousands of people that I could never know, and as I call it in the chapter, the conspiracy of love. And one of the stories I grew up knowing very well was that even moving into this town to be the first black family to integrate the town took a lot of actors conspiring to defeat the real estate steering that was going on preventing African-American families to move into Bergen County, or at least the overwhelming majority of Bergen County towns. And so what my parents encountered was they would show up at homes and be told by real estate agents, oh, this has been sold, or the, the owner had to pull it off the market. And they went to a organization called the Fair Housing Council which was a small group of activists at the time, black and white, who then sent a white couple out, volunteer, two volunteer people who I couldn't track down, who I don't know who they were, that acted as a test couple. And the, after my parents were told that the house was sold or pulled off the market, they, then the test couple found out the house was still for sale. They put a bid on the house, pretending as if they were my parents, and a, a bid that was accepted by my parents. And the bid was then accepted by 
the owners, and the day of the closing came, and instead of the white couple showing up, my father and a Fair Housing Council lawyer did, they come into the real estate agent's office, and my father said the, the, the lawyer was very proud, walked up to the guy and said, you're in violation of New Jersey Fair Housing Law. The real estate agent realized he was in a sting operation, and before the lawyer could finish his speech, his civil rights speech, the real estate agent gets up and punches my dad's lawyer in the face, and they start having a, 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 sc a scrape. At which point the real estate agent calls for his dog, sort of sigs a dog on my father. And this, afterwards, he finally breaks down. The guy, my father says, started crying, begging my father not to move into the town, that we would, my family would ruin the town and we should want to live with our own people and so on and so forth. And so after a lot of uh, wrangling and efforts on the Fair Housing Council, we eventually moved into this town that I knew, know as home, that I know as part of who I am, this town called Harrington Park, New Jersey. And my father, of course, affectionately called us the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. And so for me, in writing this book, I was very conscious of the not only the political climate we live in, which is that everything is going to be fact-checked six and seven times, but also just my own desire to go back and see the experiences of my lives from the lenses of other people. I decided to go back and just try to find as many folks as I could. So I found Lee Porter, the head of the Fair Housing Council who turns 90 this year, and she's still, from the 60s till now, the head of the Fair Housing Council, and an amazing sort of time I had interviewing her about what were her motivations. And then I also found that small group of lawyers, one guy named Arthur Lessman, who I got a chance to talk to. He's in his 80s now. It was a very moving interview because when I really asked him his motivation, he knew the exact day that it was a Monday that he made the decision with his, his uh, partner, Leo, one Jewish, one Christian, that they decided that these struggling new law firm, they, they would take a lot of their time and dedicate it to doing work for the Fair Housing Council. And I said, well, how did you know it was a Monday? And they said basically that it was the uh, Monday after Bloody Sunday where they watched uh, marchers on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And, and they were so moved by that that they first their first thought was to go to Alabama, but they realized they couldn't afford to. And then, like so many Americans and so many generations, they decided to do the best they could with what they had, where they were, for their country. And, and I, I talk in this book a lot about discovering familial bonds that I didn't realize uh, in this chapter, thanks to Henry Louis Gates that traces my history and makes me realize that I'm not only the descendant of slaves, but I'm also the descendant of slave owners, and not only the descendant of Native Americans, but also a descendant of Alabama militiamen who kicked Native Americans off their land through the Creek Wars. But what I found that was more moving to me was the spiritual bonds amongst Americans, that I don't know if those people on that Edmund Pettus Bridge, whose names I don't know, these courageous Americans who stood there peacefully in front of such uh, violence, I don't know if they knew that instantly they would trigger a causal chain that would change the destiny of, of two white men, two white young lawyers, who then would get involved with this um, great group called the Fair Housing Council that would then help usher in families like mine that would change my destiny. But I am a United States senator right now. I am who I am because of that causal chain, that spiritual bond that exists between Americans. And we so often underestimate our power to affect the world around us. But every day we make choices where just by doing an act of kindness, decency, and love, we can unleash these causal realities that will change the outcomes of generations yet unborn. I want to stay zoomed in for a minute on your parents because I found this story, it was not a story that in its broad strokes I haven't heard before, right? Of course, I know sort of anybody who took American history 
does that there was a tremendous amount of work done in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s by individual black families to desegregate neighborhoods. But when I read your story, it really brought me up short in the following way. Where you live is so personal. It is such a, a deeply personal decision, and it is such a question of how pleasant, how easy your day-to-day -day life will be, that what it would take to make it into a political act of that nature with, with the fear that you'll be in this neighborhood where people will, will actively be fighting you, actively potentially be willing to harm you. Have you spoken to your parents about why they decided to make that decision? Because they could have lived other places very nearby to there. Uh, and they were showing uh, in your story homes that were nearby to there just in much more African-American predominant neighborhoods. But they chose to do this to be the first family in this neighborhood. And that just strikes me as a really extraordinary decision to have made. And, and I'm curious if they've told you why they made it. Yeah. And I asked my parents about the, there must have been fears, not only the ones you mentioned, about possibly having racism and bigotry focused on them every day, but talk to them about putting two black boys in a predominantly white school. And there was a lot of issues when you grow up in an integrated environment during a time in the 70s and 80s where the media profiles of African-Americans are so negative where your classmates' understanding of uh, diversity and, and blackness could be so affected by that world. And, and so I always ask my parents, why would they want to be trailblazers or forerunners like that? And they really did believe it was part of their responsibility in the larger unfolding story of this country. And, you know, they were already working now as trailblazers, you know, two of the first African-Americans to enter sort of the executive world of IBM. My father was very active in with the Urban League and being the first, one of the first blacks hired by an oil company, one of the first blacks hired then by a department store. And, you know, so much of my parents' experiences from the time they were at black colleges, historically black colleges, was trying to break down the walls of segregation. So I think that they really felt motivated to be folks that were pushing the bounds of um, tolerance, love, uh, integration in this country. And they felt that there were risks for my brother and I. And that's why growing up, now I see it as a valuable experience, but my parents were constantly shuttling me over something that I was very conscious of as a young kid. They were constantly pulling me back and forth over the American color line. And so whether it was soccer games on Saturday, then a black church on Sunday, whether it was uh, movies with uh, my friends where my parents would take the, the whole gang out for a movie or shuttling me into Newark or New York to see African drummers or African-American plays and cultural events. In many ways, for me, it was a gift, but I had parents that worked very hard. They were, they were, my mom tells me about me insisting to meet with teachers. If I started failing in a class, before things went from an A to a B to a C, they would be there and have direct conversations with you know, teachers. And I remember that this is either your fault or my son's fault, but I'm going to get to the bottom of this and, and, and because my son is not a is an A student. And so I appreciate that, that the courage that my parents had in, in risking their family for this larger vision of what America should be. They were very vigilant in making sure that they controlled against the possible problems. And by the way, when the, the occurrences weren't negative, when our neighbors were incredibly loving uh, to the point where 
you know, both of my parents worked, and so they relied on neighbors often to carpool my brother and, and, and I, where I would come home and eat snacks at my friends' houses, and other families' parents would work all day and then come home and coach me in Little League Baseball and spend time teaching me the fundamentals of sports that eventually would open up doors for me for scholarships and the like. And so my parents would then remind me and use those as instructive points to never make broad-based conclusions on people, to not prejudge individuals, be they black or white, and to recognize that love is something that is being evidenced in this country by a whole array of people. There's a, a deep positivity about your book, and I think about your outlook generally, and you, and you talk about how much of that experience after moving into that neighborhood is more positive than people would have expected. But, and this question might be so obvious as to almost not make sense for me to ask it, but did you experience much racism growing up? I mean, I was thinking about what it must have been like. I was looking in the back at the pictures, and there's a picture of you and your soccer team, and, and you're the only African-American on the soccer team. I mean, was that just life for you and it felt normal, or were there moments where there was serious friction around that? So, you know, my best friends are still guys I grew up with, and I consider it a loving community, but heck yeah. You experience bigotry often in the form of just ignorance. People just didn't know and often would say things to not and not realize how hurtful they were. So I would hear all the time from people thinking they were giving me a compliment saying, oh, Corey, well, you're not like other black people. Well, how do you know? Do you know any black people or are you just looking at the news or looking at TV or just subtle things that kids are going to do to anybody that's different? kids always wanting to compare their skin color to me if they came back from a vacation and they had a tan. How many people on a daily oh basis wanted to touch your hair because they had never seen hair like mine? So those things, very subtly, to even overt incidences, to when I got older and started having my earliest experiences with police officers. So there definitely were assaults on my self-esteem or my sense of self-worth or my even own concept of beauty. Those were those conversations that you had in your family circles. Those were the conversations. And this is what I try to get people to even understand now, this, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. My parents were growing up and, and had a Black is Beautiful movement where they were trying to affirm to me, not when they would say and proclaim Black is Beautiful. That doesn't mean that white is not beautiful. But they were so understood what my brother and I were going to be enduring and engaging in. And they wanted me to look in the mirror after seeing in movies and TVs and soap commercials and all of this, the beauty ethic that was being heralded by all of society, they wanted to make sure that when I looked in the mirror that I saw darker skin, thicker lips, tighter curls in the hair. They wanted me to make sure that I saw myself, that I too was created in the image of God and that I too was beautiful. And that took work. And, you know, as kids, often you want to fit in. And it was a struggle at times for me. But at the same time, I feel now really blessed by the challenges, experiences, as well as the unfettered love. And look, I, I, you know, it's funny. I haven't told this story in, in years. God, even just like my prom date, which was one of the more humiliating experiences of my life, and I can't believe I'm talking about it now, but to have your prom date tell you that they can't go to the prom with you because their parents won't let you because you're black. And then this is the humiliation of it. Deciding to, okay, we're going to create this ruse and we're going to have my best friend uh, pick up my prom date and me stand in the middle of the street down the road waiting uh, and, and play a trick on her parents, which to me I feel 
felt such shame for that, didn't tell my parents about it. So instances like that, when you're a teenager, 15, 16 years old, they hurt, and you don't necessarily have the skills to process it yet or the sophistication to understand it yet. Uh, but at the same time, you know, all of those things, those, those difficulties, those, those humiliations, those challenges, all fed to make me the person I am today. And, you know, I found even as a teenager, I was drawn to the person that was picked on or the person that was different. And I always felt a desire to stick up for those folks because the gift I got at a very early age was the gift of empathy from experiences of my own. That that prom story is, is shattering. Were you angry? I don't. I felt embarrassed and ashamed at the time. I still remember standing there in this awful tux, <laughs> standing in the street, and I instantly, I think, was regretting what I had done, feeling like I should have shown up at that door, given a powerful speech to her parents, looked them in the eye, and then just left. <laughs> you know. So I think I've replayed that in my adolescence so many times that humiliation and wishing I had done something differently. So I was angry at myself for not sticking up and for not confronting bigotry head on and instead of doing this ruse. You asked me how it was. I love my home community. I love my childhood friends. I love that my parents boldly put my my family in an environment where we could have where things could have gone badly and where my brother and I did have different trials. Because to say that other African-American children or Latino children or even I saw, I, I still remember when Korean families started moving into our town in greater numbers, I saw the overt racism when somebody spray painted the sign, Welcome to Harrington Park. They spray painted Welcome to Chinatown on it. I saw in the early days when the first Korean families were moving in, them saying to a friend of mine, I still remember his name, oh, you're not like other Koreans, which was like a knife to me because I had heard them say that to me. I got so many gifts that often came in the form of difficult moments in my childhood, but they ultimately were incredible gifts because I think they expanded my capacity to feel empathy and to feel love and to see the other as someone that I felt a natural, naturally drawn to, in a sense. All in all, this whole experience, it all is a gift and a part of who I am now that I value. One thing that the the story you tell and and the sort of the the time you situated in made me think of is Tanasi Coates's big article on reparations. It came out probably now about two or three years ago. Was about housing discrimination in mid twentieth century America, and I think people forget that about it. It wasn't about slavery. It was about housing discrimination and the way that wealth that could have been and should have been being built by African Americans who would have had houses in good areas, would have been able to send their children to good schools in good areas, and would have been able to be building that compounding wealth generation after generation that was robbed from them. And it was robbed until families like yours began to slowly, painfully desegregate. I wondered if you've read that article and and what you thought of it, because it was so much about the cost of what your parents were fighting and the way in which those costs and, and what was taken there has not been paid back. No, of course I've read not only that article, but I read his book and then bought the audio version so I could listen to him read it. I digest. So you're sort of a super fan. I, first, <laughs> so first of all, I, I love the man. I don't think I've really had the chance to connect with him in a substantive manner, but I feel a lot of love and gratitude for his voice. It's very Baldwin-esque, who is my favorite author. 
and he is challenging. And by the way, you read his book and my book, and we sort of come at the world in different perspectives. So I don't necessarily agree with him and how he comes down a lot. But his book was such a valuable read. There's a few books now that I'm like pitching on other people from Just Mercy, which Brian Stevenson's book I think is one of the greater books written in the last year or so, to Michelle Alexander's, who I bought with another senator, um, bought the book for all 99 members of Congress. Uh, That's the new Jim Crow, right? Yeah, the new Jim Crow. His argument, how can you argue with it? I mean, it is the story of New Jersey, which still remains one of our nation's most segregated states, the fifth most segregated for African-Americans. And it's the story of torturously bigoted housing policies that created wealth and opportunity through programs that we can measure and then crowded, densely, densely packed. It's like, let's try to make poverty dense pockets as opposed to what we now know from data shows that somebody who's poor, who's growing up in a predominantly middle class neighborhood has so much better life outcomes. So this is beyond common sense. It goes beyond what could have been done had we done it in an enlightened way to undermine the very existence of poverty in America. But instead, we were redlining. FHA policies were rewarding developers for creating ghettos. And a lot of the policy, I mean, we people herald the GI Bill, but don't really face the ugly underbelly of the GI Bill, which gave lots of people entrance into the middle class, and how what the effects were for African-Americans who were often denied those kind of opportunities. So the story of America, which people don't understand, is very much seen in poor urban centers now, which were which were wholly the result of conscious housing policies that created avenues towards wealth and, and prosperity for some and denied it for others. You mentioned that you come down in a, in a different place than, than Tanahasi does. It's really fascinating that you say it that way because I think your book is animated by such an optimistic view of human nature and such an optimistic view of what happens when we relate to each other and, and try to see each other more clearly. And his, his book, I think, is a much more pessimistic view of human nature and much more of a view that we need to spend time recognizing how much worse things have been than we want to let ourselves believe, that, that, that our optimism can be somewhat blinding. And I find that where people fall in that divide has a lot to do with what they think about the idea that we should have a conversation about reparations, that we should have a conversation about what was taken and what was owed. So do you end up in a different place? No. So first of all, first of all, you summed up succinctly when I read his book versus what I tried to write. I do have a deep faith in human nature. I do believe in us, you know, whether you're white or Latino or Asian, I have a faith in us that's unshakable, frankly, because I have seen heroic acts of goodness and kindness under wretched conditions. But the only thing I want to correct you with is I don't believe I'm optimistic. I don't like that word in the sense that I think optimists are those folks who no matter what, the sun's always shining. They, and I think the optimism often leads us to whitewash, sanitize our history and not confront the wretched bigotry, hatred, violence that is a part of American history. But I'm actually a person that believes that what makes American history great is not, if you ignore that part, you diminish the greatness of America because the truth of our country is the overcoming of that in every generation, making strides to overcome those lesser angels of human nature. And so I, I choose the word hope, that I'm a hopeful person. Because as I write in the book, uh, really learning this from a woman named Miss Virginia Jones, 
is that hope confronts bigotry. Hope sees wretchedness. Hope does not deny the blackness of human existence and, and those lesser angels. It confronts it because hope ultimately is a response to it. Hope is the act of conviction that that viciousness and that despair will never have the last word. And so I'm a hopeful person, but I'm never going to be one of those people that doesn't want to point people to the truth that ta does so eloquently, the truth that those horrible, horrible policy, bigotry, of violence that went on, as you said, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, it, the legacy is still very much with us today. And if we have a conversation in America that doesn't, doesn't include that truth, then we are selling ourselves short. And actually, we're undermining the ability for us to manifest not only hopefulness, but the love necessary to bring our generation forward. Because I worry right now, because we're not confronting these things, that poverty is becoming uh, more deeply rooted. In fact, I've talked to enough police now and police leaders to know that if we don't confront implicit racism amongst police, then we are giving license for injustice, inequality under the law to continue and to fester. So, so something about ta book, about his work, he's talked about this, is that one thing that animates and, and helps motivate the way he sees the world is, is his atheism. Your book, one of the things that was fascinating to me reading it, one of the, the things I began to believe about you that I just hadn't known before is there's a very deep spiritualism laced throughout your book. And, and I mean spiritualism in a, in a very specific way. I'm very used to, as somebody who covers politics, the name checking of biblical verses that is a sort of trope in political discourse. But the way you talk about and the way you use words in the book, like love and interconnectedness, live passionately, trust the universe, be present. You never quite talked about it in the book, but you, you did seem informed by a much sort of deeper and more unusual set of, of ideas. And I think it is, is normally true for politicians who, who name check this stuff, but don't, but don't seem to really take anything real from it. Right. And so that is a different difference. I wish almost this was a three-way conversation. And I invite you to do that because I'd love to have this conversation with you moderating with somebody that I respect, if not revere as much as ta But I would chuckle at times when he would talk about superstitions and, and not being religion. He's, a, he's an atheist. And by the way, I think I've met atheists who are some of the most spiritual people that I know, but his worldview is shaped by his views of spirituality and mine are, 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 are deeply shaped, deeply affected, that I have a faith that we are ultimately spiritual beings uh, with capacities and abilities beyond our imagination. And so I love religion and it sounds <laughs> – and again, I try, to, I try to stay away from what I think in politics – Patriotism and religion are often used as swords to wound others, to demean others, to knock people down, as opposed to what I think patriotism is, which is love of country, which necessitates to me loving your country, men and women, even if you don't agree with them. It's a recognition that your country, men and women have value and worth and, and that we need each other. And to me, religion, and in fact, one of the things I wrote in the book, which really I just pulled off of things I'd written in social media because one night I was so angry about the judgmentalism and self-righteousness of uh, somebody from my faith, Christian, that I just penned this longer piece that starts with, before you tell me about your religion, first show it to me in the way you treat other people. Because from my faith, I believe very much in the Bible verse, faith without works is dead. And so people who, who talk about Jesus and talk about love 
and talk about these things, but can't manifest it in the most simple acts of, of decency towards one another, I don't want to hear about your, your religious beliefs then. And it often I find it disheartening. So to your point is, look, I, that's my worldview. I, and I, sometimes I use the word universe where I you want to use the word God because I want to value everybody's faiths and beliefs. But as a guy who studied Hinduism, who studied Islam, who's really studied Judaism, I just find it beautiful. I just find it a empowering way to look at the world. And I find that there is magic in life. And, and, and I look for that. And I, and I feel like I found divinity in places where people wouldn't normally see it. I found magic. I think one of the quotes I use in the book is by Emerson, which is something to the effect of that only which we have within can we see without. If we see no angels, it's because we harbor none. And I'd like to be able to see the divinity and, and the angelic nature of humanity. And I find that when I see that more, it becomes true and becomes real. If this isn't too personal of a question, who are some of the spiritual thinkers or, or writers who, who've influenced you, who you think about routinely? Some of my heroes who have been revered within their faiths are people like Gandhi, who, you know, when I was in England, I, I lived there for two years and I just fell in love with his works. I studied, started studying Torah uh, under uh, a, a rabbi named Shmuley Boteach, who's somebody I have a long history with, who's certifiably Meshuggah, but uh, I owe him I owe, <laughs> owe him great gratitude for introducing me really to the Torah and and a whole world of study of people who I now Maimonides, uh, Hillel, and really turned me on to read and learn about great rabbis, whether it's Rabbi Prince or Abraham Joshua Heschel or even the Rebbe, who I think really have helped me stretch. There are a lot of theologians. Reinhold Niebuhr is somebody that uh, has really affected me. C.S. Lewis. So I can talk a lot. I mean, I've I've spent uh, a lot of time wrestling with faith. And I think that faith necessitates humility. I mean, this you're, you're actually grappling with conceptions of the divine, and that is un, in, uncapturable. It is the infinite, and you're just a finite set, to use a, sort of a physics set. And you're, you're a finite set trying to comprehend the infinite, and you have to approach it with humility and, and an openness to find teachers from all different walks of life. And I've been a person since I since I left my parents' home and, and 18 years old, and I got a very firm grounding in church in, in a particular tradition, in the black church tradition. They planted a lot of seeds, but when I got to college, I wrestled with my Christianity, wrestled with my understanding of Jesus and, and the divine, especially being a guy who believes in inclusion and not exclusion, and have spent my life as a person that is always trying to search for a deeper understanding of divinity. And it's, it really has helped to inform my life, my politics, my, my life mission is really informed by my faith. It, it was fascinating, and this jumps a little bit forward in your book, but you, you told the story of a lengthy fast you undertook when you set up essentially a very large tent in between two housing projects. Am I right about that? Yeah, they were low-income housing. Low-income housing. And you were trying to draw attention to the amount of drug dealing and crime that was happening there without the city having developed much of a response. And, and it was fascinating the way you told that story because something that was happening a little bit in the background of that story is that you began the story very angry. You began the story very hurt. You yelled at an advocate from these housing structures who you'd been very close with. And by the end of the story, when you were at the seventh or eighth day of the fast, 
you were hugging this mayor who you had a really, really difficult relationship with. And, and you were talking about how you felt very emptied of of that anger from before. I'd be curious to hear a little bit more about why you decided to fast during that moment, because it's one thing to go and decide to set up the, the camp, and it's one thing to decide to be there. But you added this sort of spiritual dimension, this dimension that's, you know, and this dimension also reminiscent of, of the way Gandhi and Martin Luther King did their activism. And I'm, I'm curious about the decision making behind that, because it, it is not a normal tactic of contemporary American politicians. I hope that you saw in that chapter, the beginning of it, where you said I was angry, that year, 1998 to 1999 for me, was you know coming off this climax of an upset election, the youngest person ever elected in our city, feeling like I was Luke Skywalker going to take on the empire, and then had a horrible, horrible year of comeuppance, where I was, my arrogance was sort of revealed to me, my thoughtlessness was was revealed to me a lot it was a year of learning a lot of tough lessons that really culminated in a breaking point for me where somebody that i loved and cared about at a time when i was hurting uh, that i was paranoid uh, which in this case might be justified because a lot of things were happening to me politically that were just terrifying and i was now living in in these high rise buildings and hadn't fully sort of dealt with some of the challenges that were there as as uh, one guy who was a best described as a drug kingpin told me around this time that he had to intervene to get people not to shoot me. It was a, it But was, they were just going to shoot you in the leg. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's why he comforted me when he told me the story <laughs> that that it was it was really yes, it was just going to be a warning shot in the leg uh, according to him. And so look, it was a bad bad year that ended in this combustible moment where uh, someone who, but for her, I would not have gotten elected, calls me up demanding I do something and then me saying I, I can't do anything. I'm powerless, basically. And I felt just completely impotent at now and felt angry that I had decided to get into politics in the first place because I felt I was far more noble and effective as a lawyer on the outside representing tenant groups. And it was a breaking point. And then this amazing woman who at about five or six points in my life of, very, of big emotion seemed to show up and at times say the right thing at the right time. There's a saying, which I know you've heard, the truth will set you free, but sometimes first it will piss you off. That was Miss Virginia Jones to me because sometimes she would tell me the truth, but it would really piss me off. And so she toyed with me at the worst time where I was ready to burst. I don't know if it was anger, tears, or what have you. But she so toyed with me that I ended up thinking about this idea that was I really powerless and was I really ready to surrender? And I basically, in that moment of being completely broken, decided just to give myself over to what was at the time, what triggered it really was this Bible verse that many, if I said it in a large black congregation, they could finish it, faith the size of mustard seed you can move mountains. But then the next verse, most people don't know, that talks about fast and prayer. And yes, I had known and read about Gandhi and a lot of other activists. So that was somewhere in my mind. And I just got the idea that I was going to, I didn't know the answers. I didn't know how to make change. I was felt incredibly helpless. So let me just surrender myself in the most humble way I can to just asking the universe to help me, please. And I will I will look for clarity in prayer and fasting. And, and so I went out to this project, had a, had a very moving reconciliation moment with this woman 
who embodied what I think of as of, of the term grace, which, you know, grace is not something in a religious sense. And I think in a human sense, grace is not extended because of merit or because you deserve it. We should be, we should extend grace to each other despite who we are. And we all are pretty, or have in our lives done pretty bad things, but we are deserving of grace. And so she gave me love and I turned around and this was not humble, did what politicians, I think they teach you in Politician 101, I called a press conference and just basically declared to the world that I wasn't leaving this place, I was going to go on a hunger strike. And then I started praying and fasting and had religious leaders, particularly Jewish and Muslim leaders, talk to me about fasting traditions, many of which I already knew from the first rabbi that really ignited my interest in Judaism, Rabbi Botech, just this idea of how fasting is very, very much a, a ritual that's present in many faiths. And over those 10 days, the two things that really affected me was, one, the prayer and fasting where I really did feel centered, more centered, more clarity than I had felt a lot in, in my life spiritually. And at the same time, I was witnessing acts of love that were every day were, were moving my heart more and more because I just saw everybody descending onto these to this tent, blacks and whites and Latinos, rich, poor, a mayor from a comparatively wealthy town and his police officers, activists. It, it was just, I felt like I was sitting in witness of us, of who we are, true character. And then the mayor who was getting beat up in the press, and I think I, I included some of the, the clips in the book, decided he was going to come out. And I think he expected it to be a much more difficult situation for him. But by the 10th day of not eating and praying and witnessing the kindness of others, I had no animosity towards him. And it was this strange feeling. And by the way, it was a calm before a storm because he and I would a few years later go at an epic sort of mayoral contest. But I still remember seeing him for real, not with judgment, not with hurt from things he might have done to me, not with fear or or ambition about him being somehow the person I was going to fight, but just in a pure, simple way, seeing his humanity. And the part, and this is interesting because my editor had, uh, during one of the edits, had written out this one moment, and I insisted it being put back in, not the moment of the hug where he, I say nice things about him to this very large crowd and, and then turn to him and we hug. And then he, after the hug, he puts away his prepared remarks and gives a speech that annoyed some people because he virtually predicted my future mayorality. What so struck me in the embrace that, that I insisted be kept in was when I smelled him. It sounds strange, but when I breathed in, he smelled like older men, like older black men in my family. And it was so familiar when I smelled him. And I just felt love to this guy. I just felt a love that empowered me almost as if it was releasing me from the prison of circumstance that so contorted my feelings towards him. And for me, it was a, a very powerful personal moment that I try to actually try to remember even today at times when I'm looking at somebody that I have such animosity towards, I try to remind myself of their humanity. I spent a lot of time thinking about this this part of the book, and, and I want to talk about your later race with Sharp James just Partially selfishly, because I had a very, 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 very tiny interaction with it. But what was fascinating about the 
final meeting in this chapter between you and James and, and and James for just to give some context for listeners is the mayor of Newark you're in the you're on the city council at this point and he's been the mayor for a very long time he's a machine politician had been involved if I'm not wrong and you please correct me if I am in the civil rights struggle at, at, at some time but over time it's sort of become a bit of like a, a political boss figure in Newark but you at that point had had a pretty adversarial relationship. He comes out to this very, very visible protest you've been holding. This protest has led to him getting bashed in the press. You've basically forced his hand to to pay attention now, and you treat him in this very unusual way. And and my guess at that point, after however long it was of fasting, now I think you said eight days. I'm sure that the energy you're throwing off is not what he expects at all. And he gets up and doesn't use his prepared speech and says, I'm somewhat scared to come up as an old man who understands that I have to pass the baton. And there's something about the way in which you'd spent eight days fasting at that point. The fact that your perspective on this was unusual is very explicable. He had probably been around you at that point for a couple of minutes. And it was a fascinating and to me very powerful idea about how differently people you think of as your enemies can react to you depending on how you react to them and how you frame the interaction. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. You know, we would years later have a very ugly confrontation, ugly confrontation. And when I was criticizing the Republican debaters, you know, I always try when I'm when I hear myself criticizing people, and I haven't stopped, nor will I, I really try to make sure that I'm not being a hypocrite. And there was a moment on a playground years later from this, I think it was probably like 2004 or five, this is 1999, where I just, I just lose it. And just, we, we have a basically almost what looks like, and the Star Ledger had profound pictures of this, almost like a playground brawl between two fifth graders, where I was just, I had come to watch, ironically, a, a unity in the community basketball game. And this was during a period where Sharp was, where the mayor was having me escorted out of public housing authorities, out of parks, and so on and so forth. And so his, before he arrived, the security tried to move me out of the, said, you have to go. This is public housing authority. You have no right to be here. And I just refused to leave. And so when he came up, he was infurious. And they're just it just turned into a almost a melee where literally the picture in the Star Ledger is his bodyguard and me nose to nose with his bodyguard with his hand on his gun and me refusing to move. And it was just, I felt so bad because there are children all around watching us. And so that was the nadir, I think, of our conflicts where I, I succumbed to anger and the bile that was burning in me. I let it overflow. And I set a horrible example for children. But, you know, rewind to this moment where it was the exact opposite of that, where I led with love. And I think that it manifested in him. We touch each other. We feed off each other's energy. And I think this was one of those moments where we both were elevated by each other, and it ended in a wonderful way. But again, I don't want to mischaracterize this whole protest I did because, you know, 10 days fasting and, and praying, but, you know, the mayor made a lot of promises that didn't get fulfilled. And the point I've made about this when I've spoken about it publicly is, like, I've learned the hard way in life that change doesn't come in an instant, even 10 days. Um, it took years for us to get the parks built in that area and the challenges of those buildings. As I was writing these chapters, that chapter, the building was popping up again in the news because the current mayor was raiding those buildings for horrendous code violations and the challenges. Uh, still, I, and I put this in the original chapter 
this part got edited out, that the people there were saying, I wouldn't want my first worst enemy to live in this housing. So the long-term story of those buildings are is still difficult and sad. But in this one isolated moment during a summer where the residents got peace, police protection, saw hundreds if not thousands of people show up to that blacktop, I found something special there that stayed with me for the rest of my life and, I, and that I've tried to live up to in, in the years to come. You write something early in this chapter about what you thought you did wrong when you came to city council. And you wrote that for a guy who talked a lot about change, I went about it in a boneheaded way. I didn't seek common ground with my colleagues. Instead, I walked in and sought to distinguish myself from them. I wanted to be the reformer, but by separating myself from them, I undermined my ability to advance change. And we're in an election season here. And and I thought that was a a fascinating argument. And, And you reprise it a couple of times because I think a lot of this election and also a lot of how people feel about Obama's presidency as well is about this question of what kinds of compromises are reasonable and not just effective but but moral to make when you're trying to change things. What kinds of compromises with a political system many people believe are corrupt? What kinds of compromises with, with maybe parts of your own party or parts of your base that express feelings that maybe one shouldn't totally give into. I think the Republican side is having some real issues around here. And at the same time, you're a politician and, and, and continued to be one who was able to get a lot of press, who did a tremendous job managing spectacle, managing social media, being able to put yourself out in places that created a lot of spotlight on you and the issues you cared about. And so I'm curious how you think you balance that argument, which on, on some level argues for a kind of quietness in the way you, you go about change, a, a, an effort not to offend older colleagues, not to draw too much of the spotlight onto yourself with a career in which I think that, that you've used as a way to leverage change and a way to win elections, uh, an ability to, 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 to really distinguish yourself, to, to argue to people that you do things other politicians don't. You go where they won't. So I was not as good of a city council person as I could have been and made a lot of mistakes that now that I'm in a legislative body, I remembered and was encouraged by people not to repeat those mistakes. And so I came to the United States Senate with a determination to keep my head down, to stay away from the national media for the first you know, year, two years that I was there, because I, as much as some of my colleagues were doing things that I could have run to a microphone and gotten a lot of attention, whether it's Senator Inhofe with a snowball uh, who's you know now the chairman of my committee or senator? Just, just to tell that story, Senator Inhofe, who runs the committee responsible for for energy policy and, and climate change, threw a snowball on the floor of the Senate and said, "See, it's cold outside. There's no global warming." Right. And instead, I wanted to to not accentuate my differences with the senator Inhofe, but I wanted to see him for his humanity. I wanted to get to know him as a person and create a relationship with him. And Senator Inhofe and I now have partnered on things that have moved the needle for my state and I believe for our nation. And we have a relationship that I savor now because I didn't repeat the mistakes of my last legislative days. And I had a lot of my colleagues, and again, you're getting me to admit things I haven't talked about publicly yet, but uh, I laugh about this because I came to the Senate and some of my colleagues have very honestly told me they thought I was going to be a jerk. These is not their words, but my interpretation that I was going to be some kind of glory hound. And I now have very good relationships with people who have made that very candid admission to me. So I'm happy that the lessons I talk about in this book come full circle. 
But to go to some of the things you said before about my attention grabbing things as a mayor and the spectacle that was often around my mayorality, we came to a conclusion in 2008 that we were fighting a losing battle uh, in Newark, that we just didn't have the cards dealt to us to produce the change that a city that was very, had high, high levels of poverty, tremendous economic challenges, both budgetarily as well as facing my constituents, that was not only being ignored, but being willfully ignored by developers and investors who, you know, I have some choice stories about people laughing at me when I told them that they needed to bring their business or their economic activity to the city of Newark. And then we were on the precipice of falling into the worst economic, what they call globally a recession. But you know, I know that in inner cities, you get depression level conditions, unemployment, foreclosures and the like. And so in 2008, we decided in my team that we needed to bring, make, make, make Newark's story a national story, make the cause of Newark a national cause, and choose strategies that were going to bring light and attention to the cause of, of what I think is the cause of our country, but the, the unfinished business. And so we leaned in to using everything from new media, like, uh, uh, like social media, uh, thanks to uh, some amazing people who gifted me platforms in terms of teaching me how to use them, to even finding ways to crisscross the country and start making more strategic appeals to come to the city of Newark, especially now that we were ramping up the attention on the city. And it worked. It was a great strategy to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars of new philanthropy to the city, to bring in developers and investors, to move companies back to Newark, like Panasonic moving to North American headquarters there. And you know, after seven years as mayor, we shifted in the midst of the worst economy of my lifetime, our lifetime, we were able to shift a city that had decades, 60 years of declining population, now growing as a city, and bring in its biggest economic development period and bring opportunity to our residents, whether it was apprenticeships and unions or parks in their neighborhood or doubling the production of affordable housing during the worst housing market that paid dividends. So I guess I go through that whole whole thing to say that for me, life is about purpose, not popularity. It's about significance, not celebrity. And you kind of got to get focused on what your goals are and then what the strategy is to achieve them. And Newark for me was a great lesson about being loyal to the ends and being creative in the use of your means. Can this be corrupting in the other direction? You, you mentioned Senator James Inhofe throwing the snowball on the Senate floor and not making an issue out of that. Now, on the one hand, that does allow you to build a relationship with Senator Inhofe, who's a very important senator, has power that is important to your state, and you can get you know potentially very powerful things done with him through compromise. On the other hand, it is the most powerful senator on environmental issues, making a discredited, ridiculous argument about global warming, which is, I think you believe, one of the very central issues that we face as a planet. And is there a trade-off there? Is there a trade-off in now there being a, a, a real pressure on you not to step forward and not to draw attention to that and, and, and try to use that as a as political leverage to push the argument about global warming in, in a different direction? So, so first of all, absolutely. And, and we all, I really want everybody, I hope from reading this book, to really think about what 
their authentic truth is and to try to live in accordance to that and picks and I by the way I don't blame strategies there are some of my colleagues and you know them on both sides of the aisle you know some of my two of my colleagues now running for president and you can judge them or not but both freshman senators people like Ted Cruz were not creating friends and relationships down in Washington necessarily and were drawing a lot of attention to themselves and now are in the midst of a presidential election and have an arguably, you know, a shot at least being president and potentially changing the world in accordance to the, what they, that's their strategy, but it's not mine. Look, Chris Christie and I, for example, I could write a dissertation on my disagreements with the guy and he's done things that have sent my temperature through the roof, angered me. You know, when he got into office, he talked about never raising taxes, but then he cuts the earned income tax credit. So in effect, the people he was raising taxes on were the poorest of New Jerseyans. He cut funding to Planned Parenthood. And I don't care what you want to say about abortion. In, in states like mine, Planned Parenthood is, is preventative care, cancer screenings, the kind of stuff that women in my community really need. He pulled out of the regional greenhouse gas agreements, the, the number one reason why my kids in Newark miss school, kids in Camden, kids in Patterson, kids in Passaic is asthma. And so I had to decide. I'm now mayor of the largest city. And by the way, people were predicting in 2009 when he got elected that the next big epic fight was going to be a governor's race between the two of us. I could decide to use every moment I had to bash him, or I could realize that I'm in the middle of a recession and figure out ways to work with him. And so maybe the best way to characterize the, the, a moment for an issue that I'm incensed about in this country which is LGBTQ rights, um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered Americans. We live in a country where a lot of people might think we made a lot of success by advancing marriage, which we did, but there is still violence and bullying and, and what, what's happening with LGBT kids right now. We still have a nation where you, most states you can post your wedding pictures, but you can still get fired from your job or denied housing and have no legal recourse because we're a nation that still has a tolerance for such a blatant discrimination. So when I got elected to office, this was, again, 2006, before many of our Democratic colleagues had not evolved yet, I raised the pride flag. It's the first thing I, one of the first things I did and got hate calls. And these, again, this is 2006, so these are days the hate calls I got were not anonymous hate calls. These were people that told me who they were and told me where I could go and that they would never vote for me and support me. And I declared that I wouldn't officiate weddings as a mayor. I would stop that practice uh, until I can officiate weddings for everybody. So long story short, Chris Christie and I have a meeting at his office that I'm running to because he and I have now had a heart to heart where we agreed we would double down on areas we agreed. We would definitely not hide our disagreements, but that it, we weren't going to undermine any kind of relationship by bashing each other gratuitously on, on those issues. So I go down to, to, to Trenton to meet with him about a massive development project in Newark where I need his partnership. It's going to create many jobs for my residents. I've already battled with the union, so they're going to let Newark residents on these jobs. And it just happens to be the day that our legislature passes marriage equality and the governor's going to veto it. <laughs> and so I go down and, and people think I'm down there to protest this because at this point I'm, I'm, I'm running around the country talking about a marriage equality when I can. And I go down there, I have my 45 minutes with the governor, and I come out, and people look at me and say, you must have given it to the governor there. You must have da-da-da. You know, what did you say? How did it go? And I'm like, I didn't bring up the subject. 
And I, I just candidly said, I could have yelled at him, screamed at him. We could have argued over it, spent my 45 minutes with the governor, and he wouldn't have changed one inch, and I wouldn't have changed one inch. Or I could have spent every minute we had working on this development project and producing real results for my city. And so people might disagree with me on that and think that that was a wrong tactic and you know, my civil rights ancestors would have laid down maybe in front of his door and not moved or been arrested or what have you. But I was a mayor of a city that poverty was and still is one of the biggest challenges in the city of Newark. And I needed to move the bar where I could. And I chose a tactic that resonated most with my values at the time. And, and it's a strategy that I'm still using now. I've passed legislation with Ted Cruz. I've passed amendments with Senator Inhofe for homeless and better and, and foster children. So I've chosen my path right now, and I believe that the strategies are paying dividends, as they did when I was mayor, and now they are as a legislature. But I'm not – everybody's got to find their road. And, and I think the bigger question is, is, are you living boldly in accordance to your own values? Uh, you know, there's an, a point I make in the book that we always have a choice to make, to accept things as they are, take responsibility for changing them. I'm more worried about the people that aren't taking responsibility for making change, who are just accepting things, than I am about people that might choose different strategies to make change than I am. So I want to talk a bit about your first race against Sharp James, which is actually one of my first political experiences. So you and I don't know each other very well, but you knew my grandfather, my late grandfather, quite well. Yes. Um, he was a big supporter of yours from early in your career. You were always incredibly kind to him. You know my older brother a bit better, too. and. So my grandfather, when I was in, you know, when I was 15, kept talking about this incredibly inspiring candidate out in Newark and kept sending me, he used to send me, you know, four days a week, these envelopes full of newspaper clippings. And there were a lot of Cory Booker newspaper clippings. And sort of late in your race with James, my brother went out to work on it and had me come with him. And we were volunteering on that election. It was an incredibly ugly election, though. I mean, one of, looking back on it, uglier than virtually any I've covered since. And the particular part I wanted to talk with you about, because I think it is sort of one of the harder parts to talk about, was the role of race in that election. And race is powerful in our politics now, but it was unusual there because you're African-American, James was African-American, but he ran an incredibly racialized campaign against you. You quote some of what he said about you in your book, um, that you were a Republican who took money from the KKK, that you were collaborating with the Jews to take over Newark. These are not words I like, but you were the faggot white boy. And then his spokesman said it was a, quote, emotional reaction from him, and that was the walk back. And you lost that election, and you lost it in, by a pretty close margin. I've always been curious what lessons you took about the role of race in politics and how race gets used in politics from that uh, from that campaign. So just allow me just 60 seconds to just to say something Please. about your, your grandfather who showed me an irrational kindness during this period of my life that so struck me. I mean, and, and I know it wasn't initially about me because there, there's a diaspora from Newark. I mean, this used to be a city almost twice its size. And he just loved the city so much. And when he saw me trying to make change, I still remember he came to my city council office and just really encouraged me. And you got nice notes from him. I got incredible notes from him. And he was just this truly gentle man. 
uh, who was just very, very supportive of me, and, and I have a lot of fondness for him. So I just, I, I just want to uh, say that, and, and, and I know he's now passed away, but I, again, my spiritual beliefs is that, you know, as I say, uh, death can end a life, but it can't end a love, and I, I just know that your, your grandfather's energy is still with us. So, look, that was, uh, I, I joke with students all the time when I say, you know, if you're going to have a spectacular failure in your life, have a documentary team there to capture it, <laughs> because... Um, the, 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 uh, the, it was made into a, a movie street fight where I would say the filmmaker did an unbelievable job and ended up winning the Tribeca Film Festival Audience Choice Award and getting nominated for an a Oscar and then, of course, to me, ignominiously losing to a film called March of the Penguins. Which uh, penguins? Which, yeah, you know, God, I'm a vegetarian, but now a vegan actually, and I'll make, a, but I'll make an exception if somebody's serving penguin meat. Um, <laughs> no, but. Uh, you know, he captured a lot of it, but there's some things I wished he was able to capture that we endured during that election. And he shows very painful moments about the racializing of the campaign and the things he said about me that really affected, I think, for me at that point, by the time the election came, I was sort of sensitized to the way that he was going to be attacking me. But I watched what it did to my dad and, and my mom, but more my dad who was so proud. He was a guy that grew up in, in the Jim Crow South, raised me to, to, to remember my blackness in a way that was not about food or music, which he definitely taught me. I mean, I was, I was joking with somebody recently. I was listening to Richard Pryor and Red Fox Records, sneaking in, listening to my father. I luxuriated in black culture all my life. But, but his idea of remembering my cultural inheritance was more about this concept of continued struggle. And so here I was doing what my grand, my father would want me to do, which was being involved in a struggle for a community, and then to see me be vilified by Sharp along such blatantly racialized ways just hurt him because they were peers, my dad and, and, and the mayor were peers. And my, for my father to see that, it really disturbed him. And so... You know, I'm not sure what great lessons I have as far as the way race is used. I'm very proud of that 2002 election with the exception of a couple things that happened, but very proud of how my team and I comported ourselves. I'm very proud of the, what we tried to present to the city during that time, the hard work that went into it, and very sad that there, I, I got to see raw how at times during elections people will say whatever it, they believe is necessary to get elected, and it's not just seen in this sort of small arena of Newark, but we see it today. And I still see dog whistles along racial lines. I still see demagoguery, which I don't feel like is sincere, uh, where people, I think, are appealing to fears and the baser angels. And so it really made me question at times, how do you respond in the face of all of that? And again, I, I'm very happy with the way we went, and, 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 and it's given me instruction for the rest of my life because we lost, but I still felt like we lost with honor. And as a result of that, I think it helped us to come back and win the biggest lopsided victory the city had ever seen in a contested election. Let me ask you a related question on, on race and politics because I do think it connects. So when Barack Obama, now obviously President Obama, was running, was running for office in 2008 and even a bit before that after he'd won the Senate, you and he and him were often mentioned along with Deval Patrick in Massachusetts as sort of a, a new generation of young African-American politicians. And one of the things that you would read about in those stories is all of you shared a, a really 
deep emphasis on unifying messages. Uh, Obama, of course, came to prominence with his There Is No Red America, No Blue America, Just One America speech. Your book here is called, it's literally titled United. And something that's been fascinating about the Obama era and, and dispiriting, I think, is the way a, a candidacy that many saw as a very unifying message and, and certainly a, a big step forward in America's race relations has led to a very racialized presidency. And and there's really fascinating research on this, but but some of the, the stuff that has really affected the way I, I saw this, and, and Michael Tesla, I think, is one who's done a lot of the good work here as a political scientist. But race is now much more polarized by politics than it was even a decade ago. So if you look at polling of Republicans and Democrats around the O.J. Simpson trial or the Bernard Getz shooting, you don't see Democratic-Republican splits of, of any note. If you look now at, at polling around things like Black Lives Matter, Zimmerman, even whether 12 Years a Slave should win an Oscar, you see these huge Democratic and Republican splits. And, and I'm curious how you think about it and how you reflect it, watching this election move forward, watching the way the conversation about race has become in some ways more angry and desperate and bitter, how you think about the role race plays in American politics and, and how it can and, and should be treated by, by politicians. So I, I want to read Tesla's work. I'm fascinated by analyses about what's happening. I was fascinated. I think the first race that helped me understand this was when I was down campaigning for Mary Landrieu and she got you know, something like, uh, I guess, 90 plus percent of the black vote, and forgive me if I got these percentages wrong, but for illustration, something like 90 percent of the black vote, but about, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the whites voted against her. And it was just such a shockingly split in, in, in the state of Louisiana, uh, where my family's from, my, where my, my grandfather uh, uh, lived and before he moved to Detroit. And so it, it, it just is making me curious about what's happening to this country in terms of this growing diversity that we have, where we're racing towards a period where the majority, there'll be no majority anymore. It'll just be people with different pluralities and what that's going to mean. And and so the one thing that when you were, began asking the question in, in the early parts of it, I began to think about- That what, is a question that had early parts. I apologize No, 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 not at all. <laughs> not at all. And and by the way, I want, I want us to have more conversations about race in America. But make no mistake, I was not seeking in my book, and I was trying to be very conscious in writing about it. I didn't want anybody to take away from this book that I was sort of kumbaya, Rodney King, why can't we all get along? Because that gives me a shuddering reaction. That's not what I'm seeking in our country. I want us to confront the truth of our nation as ugly as that might be. And so I know everybody's talking about the race relations are worse under President Barack Obama. That's not my measure right now. My measure is that we have a country that has persistent racial realities that are deeply unjust. That there's, for example, there is no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs. In fact, there's no difference for dealing drugs with the exception that some studies show that young white men have a little bit higher rates of dealing drugs than young black men. But when it comes to the drug war uh, and the persecution of the drug war, blacks will get about a four times more, or about four times more likely to be arrested for drug use or drug dealing. And when they get arrested for the same crime as somebody white, they're going to get about a 20 percent longer sentence. And then you look about voting, which is directly relational to this. And I'm not talking about my disappointment with the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. 
The real story in, in rollbacking of Voting Rights Act is, remember, blacks about four times more likely to be arrested for drugs, is the felony disenfranchisement, which has blacks in America about four times more likely to have lost their right to vote than someone who's white. And in some states, swing states like Florida or Virginia, one in five black Americans now have lost their right to vote. And so I think it's wonderful when I have witnessed in my life, like I did on the on a 10-day hunger strike at Garden Spires, blacks and whites coming together to work together, to pray together, to confront the challenges of that community. And I want more of that. But the, the, the racial reality that I'm seeking is that when it comes to things that are so blatantly a violation of our common values as Americans, that we deal with those real problems. I'm in the trenches right now working to confront the persistent racial injustice that we have in this country that does not have, for example, a nation that that lives up to what it says on the Supreme Court building uh, equal justice under law or doesn't live up to what we swear an oath to regularly in this country that will be a nation of liberty and justice for all. That's sort of what drives me. And I'm hoping as I have achieved when I talk to the Koch brothers general counsel or when I talk to Grover Norquist, where they do, un- and where I hear Rand Paul say this in a Republican debate that we have a real race problem in America, where I hear the head of the FBI, Comey, say very bluntly that we have the race problem we have is not that they're split amongst party lines. The race problem we have is that by the mere color of your skin in this country, you're going to get different treatment in law enforcement and in the criminal justice system and in other areas. Well, so you hear Rand Paul say in a debate that we have a real race problem in this country. And then Rand Paul gets 0% of the vote and drops out. And then you see Donald Trump initially refuse to condemn uh, and disavow David Duke and then dominate on on Super Tuesday. And something that feels true to me, and I I don't really have evidence of this, and, and it's just something that I think about when trying to understand American politics at this moment, is that there is this tremendous demographic change the country is undergoing. We're now at a point when a majority of infants under three are non-white. And as you say, we're, we're obviously moving towards a point where a majority of residents of the country totally will be non-white, will be a majority-minority nation as where I come from, as California already is. And it feels that there is a, a backlash, a kind of a, a desperate, angry, make America great again, which is to say make it what it once was again, tenor to, to at least part of this election. And, and, and it feels strange and dangerous, but also at least visible to me and at least a little bit explicit in a way it hasn't been certainly in, I think, recent years in American politics. I mean, do you see that as partly a healthy thing or do you see it as something that is getting so politicized that it is becoming an impediment to any real conversation as opposed to a sort of way we can see what the conversation really is? First of all, the the politicization of issues often does make them harder to deal with. And we have a reflexive political nature in this country that hurts our ability to do common sense stuff. And I, I saw some study, and I wish I could cite it appropriately, where they just put an education policy idea out and said it was a Democratic idea, and immediately like 80% of Republicans were against it. They took the same policy idea and said it was a Republican idea, and then 80% of Democrats were against it. If it prevents our ability to even listen to common sense, 
and to evaluate things on their merits as opposed to the person who's saying it, the party that it's coming from or, or what have you, then, then we're failing ourselves as a country. And so what, what I try to tell folks in this book is that there is no Republican or Democratic way to get this stuff done. You know, our differences matter, as I write, but our country matters more. And we have to understand that we will never be a great nation or we will be the greatest nation. And I hate to sound like a politician appealing to American essentialism or American nationalism, uh, exceptionalism, excuse me. Um, but I really do believe we have the inherent ingredients because of our heterogeneity, because of our diversity, to do something really special on this planet because the value that comes from such incredible diversity. We are a cauldron of creativity, of so much potential because we're bringing people together from around the globe the way we have. Or we can fall prey to a level of nativism, divisiveness, demagoguery that has tripped us up so many times in the past from McCarthyism to segregationism to you name it. The more we understand that we need each other, that our destinies are interwoven and are therefore must confront the injustices, must listen to each other, must understand that, wait a minute, if the black community as a whole has one in three of their children going to jail, that hurts us as a nation dramatically, not only fiscally, because it's going to cost us billions of dollars for all of that failure, but we are missing out on the opportunity costs because there's many black geniuses are born every day in America percentage-wise as, as, as whites, that we need to cultivate that genius in order for our country to go forward. So in other words, as I say, the African saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far as a country, go together. And so that's what I try to appeal to is the economics, the moral sense, and just the understanding that at the end of the day, we're one country and I need your kids to be as successful as possible if we're going to move in an increasingly competitive world against relatively homogeneous countries that we're competing against, like Germany or China. You mentioned a minute ago a study, and I collect studies like these. They're a, a hobby of mine when I like to think about how meaningless my job and my life's work are, <laughs> about how as soon as anything gets politicized, the only informational signal people will absorb is the partisan one, that whatever politics activates in our brains, it's about tribes and about group belonging. It's not about trying to get to the right answer. And I really have marinated in this kind of research. I wrote a long piece. It was the piece we launched Vox with called How Politics Makes Smart People Stupid because a lot of this research shows that the more politically informed you are, the worse this effect actually is. The idea that, oh, you're smart and you're reading all these different sources will protect you is not true. It actually goes the opposite way. But you're somebody whose life has been, uh, whose work has been about trying to change things. And now you're in the Senate at a time of very low congressional productivity, at a moment when divided government appears to be the norm going forward. Do you feel that politics is still a venue in which change can be found? Do you feel that American politics still works? Well, I guess what I feel is that if it doesn't work, if this civic space is fails, then we will all fail. And, and so I have that choice. I said before, I can accept it as, the, as it is, or I could take responsibility for changing it. And I worry now, and I say this very pointedly in the book, that I think cynicism about our politics is a toxic spiritual state that infects 
our politics and makes it more dysfunctional. And that people who throw up their hands through cynicism and think they can't do anything about the problem are contributing to the problem. And I think actually that cynicism is a refuge for cowards who are too afraid to take on the incredible challenge of making the politics of this country work. There are so many more generations that had a right to be cynical about the idea that we could women could vote or the idea that we could get labor rights or the idea that we could end Jim Crow. But we now, the challenges we have from in a very wealthy nation with that a lot of us, including you and me, are bathing in the privileges of afforded to us by this country, how dare we become cynical about our society? We've got to fight. We've got to fight. And what I found is the cynicism that then breeds indifference or apathy or disengagement, it, it's a, the worst of political statements because it allows the nonsense that we're seeing right now to gain more traction. I definitely can't tell you in the Senate for two years that I figured out how to make this thing work. But I, I come from this belief that, that our history is a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. And in one candid moment, one of my favorite moments as a senator where I was sitting with the, our state's largest newspaper's editorial board where I said, hey, if I told you when I started in 2006 that we would have achieved X, Y, and Z, would you have even believed it was possible? So we, I, I saw that you can get things done in Newark that are impossible. So now I'm in another city, and I don't know the answers yet. But I'm going to pledge the better part of my life, or at least as long as New Jersey will keep me in office, to not just not just advance issues like we have, whether it's, you know, I've been able to get, thanks to cooperation with a lot of other folks, the Hudson River crossing, the rail line's done. I, I can, we might get criminal justice reform. But my greater aspiration in this country is that we awaken to people the urgent need we have for each other, that we are each other's greatest hope, and that we've got to shape our politics to reflect that. I don't know if I'll achieve it, but that's that's one of the goals I have for my life and one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I want, I want to speak up for a view that I think is often coded as cynicism here, because I think it's actually it's interesting and it's a, it's a good debate to have that a lot of the optimism about American politics is optimism about people. And I think cynicism about American politics is cynicism about institutions. Huh. And I think that a real problem in political discussions and political rhetoric is that when people want to be optimistic, uh, President Obama is this way, I think you're this way, and I think virtually every politician I've ever met is, is this way, they'll talk about interactions they have with each other one-on-one. -on -one. They'll talk right. about interactions with their colleagues across the aisle that are collegial, that are decent, that are friendly, that are warm. They'll talk about things they see out in the world, businesses, families, that we, we do not act this way in our everyday lives. And it is true. The human being is more than he or she is when we're watching a, a presidential debate. On the other hand, we have institutions that make those forms of individual kindness and, and empathy very difficult to sustain. We have institutions that are built around zero-sum ideas of American politics where either Democrats are going to win the election or Republicans are. There really is not a, a, a middle ground. It's not possible for them both to do it. And we have a political system that puts power in different democratically elected branches simultaneously. And so we have no way of resolving the fact that the Senate doesn't want to consider a Supreme Court nominee and the president does want to, does want to propose one. And it's true that over the years in our politics, we make things work. But sometimes I think that the optimistic view is a little bit 
or, or, or the more hopeful view anyway, will sometimes wash over a little bit of what we've done to make it work, which has often been tremendously difficult changes to the underlying political system. I mean, you were elected by voters, which is not how the, the Constitution set up the U.S. Senate. And I, I, I do think it's, it's, a, it's something that happens in the conversation where we should be optimistic about each other. But I think cynicism about, or I might actually argue realism about the problems of our institutions in an age of real party polarization gets coded as cynicism when that is actually necessary for real solutions. People don't like those solutions because our institutions are treated as semi-sacred in American politics. So first of all, I agree with you in everything except for maybe semantics. I don't think I don't think that's cynicism. I think it's a healthy, healthy dose of skepticism. And I actually believe what you're saying, at least I think I, I'm, what I'm interpreting what you're saying, because I say it all the time, that you can put the most hopeful people in, into this political system in which we lie right now, and they're going to be undermined because there are structural problems with our political system that I don't, I don't think we can really achieve the ends we want until we deal with these structural problems. Some of them I don't want to touch, like the fact that North Dakota and South Dakota, which I think have less than 2 million people in it, have four senators compared to California with 40 million people only having two. You know, I, I don't think we're ever going to sort of touch at that. And, and people will argue that the framers had an idea and understanding why we should preserve a system like this. But I do think that we could change the way politics are financed, which has created a horrendous environment, which I'm in right now. And participate in right now because of my concerns about a, a 2020 election in which I could raise $20 million and have that dwarfed by some corporations who fund a super PAC, which will, means we'll never know which corporations they are or whatever, however they hide their dark money. I think we need to change that system. I think the way we draw district lines right now, what you're seeing happening in North Carolina, for example, is just a gross, gross, gross abuse of our democracy and yields these brighter, brighter blue and brighter, brighter red districts, which then make the House a far more difficult institution to achieve the kind of comedy that I desire my, on my federal level. So I think all of these things and more about the system need to change. And I, I think it was Bill Bradley who wrote this great column about criticizing the Democratic Party for being a reverse pyramid where we look for one point, like one human being, to usher in all the change and hope we want. And we neglect the, the other part of the pyramid, this wide base, which really necessitates the engagement and the involvement of us all. I like the fact that you, as someone in the media, is pushing this kind of, I don't call it cynicism, but this kind of critique. And I get it on Twitter, and it's very flattering to me when they say, oh, you've given me hope for politics. I don't want to be somebody else's hope. I, I want us each to be engines of hope through sort of an engagement, an active and intelligent engagement about creating the kind of country that we want. And that does involve changing these institutions that are just not serving the citizenry. I have a very different question about serving in the U.S. Congress. You are, to my knowledge, the only vegan who is in Congress. Is that right? Yes, I am. And I always remember that story when President George H.W. Bush said he didn't like broccoli and then later had to apologize to the U.S. broccoli <laughs> you know, growers and I think had to eat some broccoli. And just like the, the, the way food is very politicized. I'm curious if your veganism has ever been, a, been an issue for you as a politician and to what degree 
it does or doesn't set you apart just it functions with your colleagues. I'm, I'm curious what, what that's like. I mean, it's almost a funny issue because I still remember when I was a vegetarian since 1992 and, I, and one of my African-American friends said to me, there's no way a black city is going to elect a vegetarian mayor. <laughs> and uh, I just love how our country is a far, far more tolerant. And I say this all the time about New Jersey. We're the first, I think, of the 48 contiguous states to put two minorities at the same time in the Senate. We have a black guy and a Latino guy. Hawaii did it with two Asians, Asian Americans. And it's kind of like Jersey's like, eh, meh, you know, like whatever. You know, we elect the two guys. We really, we really just believe in them. And it's like I always dream that like we're going to get to a point in America where we stop counting. You know, I'm the fourth elected African-American in the history, popularly elected African-American in the history of our country. One day they won't count anymore, you know. With being a vegan, I love that I come from a state where it just wasn't a campaign issue. Now, does that mean that I have a ceiling? Is there a, is there a vegan ceiling? Like, <laughs> that, you know, that a guy who openly criticizes the farm bill for some of the things that are in it and who has been championing humane treatment of animals. I was very happy that I got into a major piece of legislation to like, let's stop testing chemicals on animals, you know, unnecessarily. Are these kind of like, you know, I saw this in one of the trash newspapers in the New York area where they call Cory Booker's radical veganism in, in an article. And then I love the fact that people wrote letters saying, what's radical about saying they want animals treated humanely or so on and so forth? So I don't, I don't know, but I, I want to – I learned this as mayor because I think if I became mayor and, and, and started plotting my way to the United States Senate, I would have been a far less effective mayor. The fact that I was just shooting from the hip and being creative and taking risks and being – brashly, authentically who I was, I think that inadvertently created an opportunity for me to become a United States senator. And so I'm happy, at least right now, I'm, I'm, I'm very satisfied being a United States senator. But you, you never know, and I'm not talking about politics, but you know, maybe when I'm 55 or 60, I, I want to do something else. And because I've lived so authentically, unapologetically, and been not one to not criticize, frankly, the subsidization that our nation does of Sugar, for example, which I, the sugar industry will probably go nuts when they hear what I've said about that. Maybe that's going to stop me from being elected to another office, but maybe it'll open up a door for me to be uh, to make contributions that I can't even imagine right now. This is way back in the timeline of your book. It's way before Washington now. But something that you skipped over a bit quickly, but was really striking to me, you had lived in low-income housing, and outside of that housing was a fair amount of drug activity. And sometime after you moved out, you mentioned that you went and you tracked down those drug dealers and you interviewed them about, in part, what they had thought of you while you were living there. And I'm very curious about that project, how you found those drug dealers, why you decided to do that, and what those conversations told you and, and, and told you about yourself. Well, again, I, I want to say that the two reasons I tracked down people in this book, one was because I thought it was be really helpful to get the lens of other people's views of me. And then the other one was, again, this is a time of Ben Carson where he would tell stories and they would be challenged. And, you know, I had experiences in the campaign where we found ourselves trying to go back to 30 years trying to find people in the midst of a crazy campaign. So I said, I'm going to write a book, but I'm going to make sure for every story I tell, I have second, third, fourth sources. So it's uh, for the book that you went and found them? Yes. Got it. Was, it. Okay, it, that it, makes sense. Yeah, it wasn't for at any other point in my life, but although there were periods in the campaign where... You know, I had people calling, challenging. I think there was at least one periodical in New York area. It seemed like every other week they were challenging a story that I had uh, told or that were part of parts of my life. And I was going through this weird experience of having to try to go back and 
and find evidence of aspects of my life to, to stop people from calling me a liar. I wanted to make sure that this book had multiple, multiple sources. And, and then in addition to that, I, I just it led me to levels of discovery as I went back and talked to people that at times gave me, gave me chills, a few times made me cry. This is not specifically what you're talking about, but one of the most difficult chapters for me to write, a most emotional one, was the chapter Father's Sons, where I start the chapter at a funeral that I couldn't stay in. I, I just felt so much shame and guilt for the death of this boy who lived four floors below me and was uh, was so much like my dad. He was witty and charismatic and like my father raised it for a period for his, for his grandmother, which was how I knew him. Uh, and anyway, I thought the chapter was going to be sort of exploring this awful reality in America where we just have children dying and how it affected me. But it ended up, I ended up just wanting to interview people about Hassan and I found his father, tracked his father down and his father's story was so profoundly powerful, a story of redemption and karmic circles that I ended up changing the whole chapter and calling it Father's Sons and using it as a chance to talk about him and me, Hassan and me, and then his father, who's my age, and my dad, to what I, I is still one of the, the, my favorite chapters in the book. And so interviewing him, it, he gave me so much insight into my neighborhood that it just, you've read the book, so you know that, that his voice in that chapter is just so compelling and moving. And that first conversation I had with him was uh, very hard for me, but healing for me as well. So going back to what you're talking about, you know, I had some very tense moments on and when I first moved there, including one time where the guys on the steps really, I felt like, were threatening my life and yelling at me, cussing at me and stuff like that. And this was a story I told before. People challenged it. So I now wanted to find the guys that were involved in that. And I actually did find, actually waited for the guy to come out of prison who confirmed this very tense interaction. And then I found, actually before this, I had already found Jace, a guy that I was shocked that he wanted me to use his name because <laughs> he told me so much stuff. I thought, okay, you're sure you're a lawyer and you would want me? He served a lot of time as well. But what was revealed to me was how little I knew about the drug trade on that street, how intricate their operation was. How, they called it like beyond New Jack City, and it was. I don't, think if, I don't think if they put a movie with all the details of this that folks would have really believed the kind of operation they were running and the money they were making out of those buildings. And so for me, it was a powerful way to see and understand what they thought of me when I showed up and what they took from me. And then finally, I'm sorry, to, it sounds like a rambling to your last question, but and then finally for me, I, I found out about the love of the women in that building and what they were really doing for me during, during my time living in that neighborhood and how they just, especially Mr. Virginia Jones, had a love not only for me but also for the guys dealing drugs that was so is so instructive and lacking of of judgment and now I say that because Miss Jones was would would not play and taught these guys you know they would do their stuff but they would be like we don't do it in front of Miss Jones so she was not in any way condoning their behavior or anything but her capacity to love in an indefatigable way so shaped my life and kept those buildings together during the most unconscionable times. And I lived in those buildings for eight years, and it was hard living for me, a young 20-something, 30-something guy. Imagine being a senior citizen with small children. I mean, I, I sort of described the life and death of these buildings in the book. God, I mean, I learned more lessons in those eight years of living than any place else I think I lived. 
Senator Cory Booker, thank you really again for spending so much time and, and talking through all this with me. It's, it's really great to get to talk to you. No, I, this has really been uh, an interview that took me places I, I hadn't been in a while. And I'm, Ezra, I'm just grateful for you. And, and literally, I've now written down uh, three sources that I'm kind of uh, from Tesla to I need to read uh, how politics makes smart people stupid. Um, and, and then, of course, before I think we began or maybe not after we began, you gave me a great app that I'm going to try as well. So I rarely have I walked away from interviews with sources that I need to look up and read as well as things that might make me a, a more diligent adherent to my own uh, ambitions, personal ambitions for myself. I'm happy to hear that. And, and just so the, the audience has it, the book um, is Michael Tesler. Not, uh, oh, Tesler. I, I, don't, I don't think I said that clearly. Okay. Michael Tesler. And I'm going to, we will have it in the show notes. It's called Obama's Race, the 2008 Election and Dream of a Post-Racial America. He's also done a bunch of great work on the Monkey Cage blog, which is a political science blog at the Washington Post. But really, really, really helpful for thinking about this kind of, uh, thinking about how race has changed in the Obama era in politics. And I'm glad that we mentioned Coates' book. I'm glad we mentioned uh, Just Mercy and uh, as well as uh, The New Jim Crow, which are just three great, great books. Are there any other books you'd recommend to the audience? Um, any other books that have influenced you uh, over over your life that you think other people should read more than they have? Um, I, I, could, I could literally start r rambling on a list, but I, I just will say some classics. I think they're just worth the read, and I'll say The Fire Next Time. And if you don't want to read the whole fire next time, I think the last page or two of that should be like required reading in literature where he where he talks and I can he was actually criticized for how he ended the book because the book was so raw, honest. And then people said he was too Pollyannish at the end, but I just think those pages were I used to have it memorized, but he said, I know what I'm asking you is impossible, but in today's day and age, the impossible is the least we can demand from each other. And one is, after all, emboldened by the spectacle of human history. And Negro American Negro history in general, for it's a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. And if we, and by we, I mean the truly conscious blacks and truly conscious whites who must, like lovers, insist upon and create the consciousness of others, uh, it just, it just, he's just. Again, I love how he talks about love, but he he earns the right to talk about love in a way that can't then be diminished. It's, it's. He's just. It's powerful. And then, uh, because we mentioned him earlier. I love the sort of subtitle of Mahatma Gandhi's autobiography because if you're doing a personal journey, which is I think the reason why we brought up Way of Life, the app, uh, and I love the way you seem to be trying to find your path to be the best you, uh, knowing that we stumble and fall and are imperfect. I like that description better than my normal, I'm a compulsive <laughs> quantifier of personal habits in ways that are borderline gross. Well, <laughs> but but yeah, personal journey like Gandhi. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but just listen to Gandhi. The subtitle is My Experiments with Truth. And, and I just, there's something that's always got me that he's not like saying, hey, this is the way and the truth and the light. He's like, I, I've been working at this. I've been trying to get it right to figure out a way. And in many ways, I became a vegetarian as an experiment. And that's what I often say to myself is like, why, if we've got, if we're going to be given like 80, 90, 100 years, why don't we just try something different? Like what, how would it be for a week if I got up and worked out and made that a no matter what? Or how would it be if I fasted for a full day? You know, so I just love this idea of experimenting with truth. And to end, and I know we've talked too long and now my staff is like screaming at me probably, but I will tell you my favorite Gandhi story, which was originally written into this book. 
and then taken out by a very good editor who realized that a 300-page book would not be a good thing. <laughs> but uh, just to, that what I think we need to, like, we tend to just criticize each other and point fingers. And uh, I just think that it, and a lot of the message I hope people take away from the book is that don't underestimate the power you have doing the best you can where you are with what you have by trying to live your truth. And so the stories of Gandhi sitting I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but he's supposedly sitting weaving and a mother comes to see him with a child and says, you know, you talk, waits on a long line to get there and finally gets to the front of the line and she says, got her audience and she's really just worried about her son's health and says, you know, Gandhi, would you please tell my son to stop eating so much sugar? He's becoming unhealthy, his teeth and decay and that and this. And Gandhi looks at her with compassion, looks at the boy and looks back at her and says, no, he refuses. And she's sort of surprised and starts to try to beseech him. And he says, come back in two months and ask me again. And so she leaves disappointed. The boy is probably happy. And two months pass. She waits in a long line, gets to the front. And she says, Mahatma, I, I have returned. Would you please tell my son to stop eating sugar? And the Mahatma stands up from where he's sitting. He walks over to her, looks at her, then puts his hand on the son's, on the boy's shoulder and says, my son, you must stop eating sugar. And now the mother's pleased. The boy's obviously affected. Mahatma touched him, and she leaves just joyously. But right when she gets to the edge of the tent, she turns around and she goes, um, forgive me if, if this sounds rude, but I just need to understand, why didn't you tell my son to stop eating sugar two months ago? And Gandhi looked at her almost perplexed by the question, and he says very, very patiently, he looks at her and says, because two months ago, I was eating sugar. <laughs> and and so I just am a big believer, and that's I hope that you do put that book on your website. But because we can't expect our country to change unless we are willing to change, we can't expect to see more kindness in the world unless we're willing to be more kind. We can't expect to see more civility in the world unless we become better agents of civility. And we definitely can't expect the world to be more united if we don't do more to be uniters ourselves. That is a tremendous story to end on, um, Senator Booker. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ezra. Thank you. That was Senator Cory Booker. I, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. It was really, really fascinating to get a chance to talk with him like that. If you did enjoy this interview, please share this podcast with your friends. Email them. Tell them to listen to it. Put it on Facebook, on Twitter. You can put it on WhatsApp, I am told, or other messaging platforms. Uh, I don't care what messaging platform you use, but, but I'd love to see it on it. It means a lot to me when you share it with folks, and, and hopefully they'll enjoy it too. You can also always email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with ideas for who you'd like to see on the show. Uh, a lot of you have done that. I have added a lot of them to the roster of guests we're going to have eventually. And it's just really, really helpful for me to hear who you are interested in, in hearing from in, in this format. So please keep those coming. Thank you to Vox.com and Panoply and to my producer, AC Valdez. And we'll be back.